we're talking about a, an infrastructure that uh, is so global and then it's just so odd how the internet is trying to be regulated according to physical borders. So that is also really strange. However, it's like, well, if you don't have any other means of organizing yourself that are not geographically located and according to political borders, then maybe that is how it needs to begin until we start figuring out. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. My name is Severin Matusek. And this is the final episode of our Metaverse special. In the past two episodes, we looked into how virtual spaces transform our bodies and identities, how artistic freedom is changing, and how institutions like museums and theaters make virtual experiences accessible. Today, we will look into the architecture of the Metaverse. As part of Creative Days 2022, our annual conference, we invited Lara Lesmes and Frederick Helberg to join us. Lara and Frederick are the brains behind Space Popular, a multidisciplinary design and research practice that has been exploring the architectural potential of digital spaces for many years. What is the role of architects in building the metaverse, you might ask? Similar to how the buildings we live in and the cities that surround us shape our behavior and perception of time and space, virtual architecture has a fundamental impact on the way we will navigate these future worlds. Space Popular have written a manifesto to guide us through it. So before we jump into the discussion, we will now read a short version of their manifesto for the metaverse. Eight propositions for a civic portal infrastructure for the virtual world. One, consistent, stable, reliable, dependable, certain. The way we move through the virtual environment must provide reliable and dependable spaces of access that do not change with every update. Communities require a degree of stability and certainty to build upon. 2. Readable, relatable, symbolic. The portals to and across virtual environments must contain information about the space behind them that is widely legible. This will require the creation of a new grammar of material behaviors, graphics, and signs to be incorporated across all access points. 3. Shared, networked, interconnected. The portals to virtual environments must be interconnected and consistent throughout, appearing the same to all citizens of the virtual environment at any given time. We must perceive the same if we are to understand a space as shared and a group of people as a community. 4. Inclusive, transparent, fair. In virtual environments, discrimination, inequality and injustice will be possible in completely new and less transparent ways than what we already experience today. Owners of virtual environments are capable of using biometric data and other personal information to determine if access is restricted or refused. We must build transparent civic systems of access to the virtual environment where discrimination becomes visible and therefore can be addressed. 5. Civic, public, communal. Currently, browsers are the unquestionable access point, the place where it all begins for all our virtual strolls. The fact that most browsers are owned and operated by for-profit companies means that from that first step, we already enter a commercial realm. 
the means of navigation must operate as civic infrastructures for the benefit of its citizens. Six, cheap, efficient, affordable, sustainable. The calculations involved in bringing us from one virtual place to another and allowing us to stroll through options must be computationally efficient and consume as little energy as possible. The environmental impact of virtual spaces should also be part of the information communicated to the citizens of the virtual environments at the point of entry. 7. Interoperable, compatible, open. The hyperlink is integral to the World Wide Web as we know it, experienced so far mostly in its flat version through screens. The underlined blue text or the button-like graphic takes on a third dimension and becomes a portal as we enter the virtual environment. In doing so, such portals must be based on protocols that are able to exchange and make use of information across spaces. 8. Woven, threaded, interlinked. The portals across virtual environments must be able to express how they are woven together, showing threads to other places and revealing the knitted network they are part of. The expression of such portals must also be familiar and cognitively coherent with our only three-dimensional frame of reference, the built environment. Fabric offers a versatile affordance, an inviting metaphor, and a canvas for information. Lara, why are you critical about the term metaverse? There should be more of an awareness of where that term comes from. But also, I think what's maybe more problematic is that the way that is used now, termed as the metaverse, very much makes it seem as a product that is there to be built, when we believe that is very much actually just an evolution of what we already have, that is the internet. Just we are adding a third dimension, and we are also adding methods of exchange and, and methods of uh, carrying information and contracts and so on that will enable new forms of authentication, new forms of uh, carrying through an identity, but is no more than an evolution of what we already have. It is just not great to see it as a product that some whatever massive company is going to build for everybody to use. But actually, hopefully we will carry through the diversity of uh, the internet as it is. Which is becoming harder and harder, I guess, because I think now that the metaverse becomes so popular and now that we have seen over the last two years how much uh, commercial potential there is, and now we're all going back to like physical gatherings again and we don't have to be on Zoom calls again. But um, yeah, probably in the next few years it's only going to show really how in the long term it's going to evolve. So when you talk about in your uh, eight... Uh, thesis of part of the manifesto, I think a very important word there is civic infrastructure, which is not commercial infrastructure, not branded infrastructure. So can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by civic infrastructure for the immersive internet? Yeah, this we, we think really is something that will be absolutely key if it's going to become anything else than just a commercial nightmare. It's getting built now, obviously, and, and in our belief from our research, it's really inevitable that we will be spending an increasing amount of time in these virtual environments. And if they are driven by revenue-driven companies, 
only, then that will be the core purpose and the quality of the interaction of humans will be secondary. Jaron Lanier, who is the person who coined the term virtual reality, who's later turned completely against many of these technologies, uh, described it quite well. If you have an interaction between two people and you have a third party who runs the platform where the interaction happens and that platform's only interest is to manipulate this conversation, then the interaction can never really be truly meaningful. Uh, so we, we, we think, and uh, we are not policymakers, we're not politicians, but we try throughout our work slightly to kind of make as many people aware as possible to try and influence um, sort of on a policy level that it's really time for cities, governments potentially, or, or other organizations to make a big effort to try and make create these virtual platforms that are public or civic. We do not see much great hope for this yet. There's a lot of groups that are trying to influence tech companies, but they will require a tremendous effort or a disaster for this to really happen. If we use a metaphor that the metaverse or the immersive internet basically becomes like a huge shopping mall where the shopping mall is owned by someone and the shops are owned by someone and all the owners of these shops have an interest of us spending more money, spending more time, etc. And there's nothing such as a publicly funded museum or a public park, you know, things that are actually funded by society or by taxpayers. Um, is that a correct metaphor for the upcoming metaverse? You can also look back at cities and maybe realize that uh, it's, it, it's not so new. I mean, or like the city square or the walled city being the city square not being originally a space that represented democracy, right? But actually being a, more of a space of surveillance. You, you had a walled city and then you have this opening in the middle of the walled city where any stranger or any, or like where people could gather, but also where you could literally be seen. So in, in a way you could see that maybe a similar trajectory. I mean, you choose a kind of safety or you choose a, a sort of predictability in the way we are also using the internet. That's why we go towards centralized platforms because there is where you actually can find your way in the mess, right? And I think that's very similar to the way in which we choose to um, uh, gather in, in cities. The thing is that, well, since we have done all of the work over the centuries uh, to build certain uh, civic infrastructures that have been some of them more successful than others, then maybe some of that could be applied proactively as opposed to retroactively, which is what now is trying to be done to social media platforms, to retroactively um, uh, regulate them. So maybe in this case it could be done proactively, but very likely it won't because it's very hard to see the relevance and the importance and the impact of, uh, of a new technological infrastructure before it's actually there and before you are actually using it. So a possible solution would be that actually city governments or national governments get involved now to build their own virtual immersive spaces, but they apparently don't. Could be 
probably won't happen. That is also really odd because we're talking about a, an infrastructure that uh, is so global and then it's just so odd how the internet is trying to be regulated according to physical borders. So that is also really strange. However, it's like, well, if you don't have any other means of organizing yourself that are not geographically located and according to political borders, then maybe that is how it needs to begin until we start figuring out. And another option is what we're trying to do a lot is that like people create their own platforms and they host them in servers where you agree with how that server is run, what energy is using and so on. You have the management of that space or you, a particular group has the management. There is an agreement and an understanding of uh, what you are uh, agreeing to when you come into that space as opposed to only, only, only using maybe uh, like very large centralized platforms. And that's where basically your concept of portals comes in, right? As kind of the interweaving fabric that connects different spaces that can be hyper-commercial or hyper-individual or hyper-artistic or countercultural. But the fabric of portals is kind of like the navigating structure that people find, right? Yeah, it's the equivalent of, of the street network, essentially. It, it works on a design level completely differently than a street network, but it, it's, it's a good metaphor where, like, unless there is some body, some organization somehow that makes the effort to connect things, even if that is not really of your personal gain or interest, like you connect a person's house with a street uh, even if that person is not going to come and buy your products or whatever, um, and like it, it's happened similarly, I guess, with other kind of now public utilities like electricity, and so when you had like several companies competing, and you either bought electricity from one company or another, and then that meant that you either had access or not to certain other things, etc. It's inevitably going to be and ideally extremely different in all of these different virtual environments. It can't all be the same. That's also not really the point, right? Which means that the transition uh, is going to be complex on a design level, but also on a political level, because you would want to bring your, whatever it might be, the way you look or the other things that you associate with yourself with you into another place that is very complex on a coding level, etc. So it will, it will require a tremendous human collaborative effort that really could become something really to be proud of. There is efforts uh, that goes in this direction. But again, we will probably have to prepare ourselves for a period that will be extremely weird with this kind of enclaves, really metaphor of the walled city, where sort of all of these things happen in the individual silos, where to bring all of your goods, your connections, your friends from one to another will be difficult, which means that uh, it will be this really a separation between different cultures until hopefully very soon this kind of portal network really gets built out on a sort of big scale. Can you talk a little bit more about your research process into portals? I love the slides that you showed at the end where you both had a huge spreadsheet with lots of information, but then as well you had these pop cultural references from uh, youth literature and, and cartoons and then video game stuff even. So how do you approach a project like that? Where do you start? Where do you find your resources? And do you feel like we can learn something from these references of 
the present as well as the past, like the portals from centuries ago that represented different things than today. Yeah, in this case, it's quite straightforward. It's really consuming the actual media where these portals takes place. So watching a lot of cartoons. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's different in other projects like Freestyle, where we were looking at the relationship between evolution media and style and architecture. Because then really we have a lot of different cross-referencing data. Um, but it's extremely interesting when we start to build up some of this data and we start to see trends because we were always under the assumption that portals had existed for a very long time in fiction, but it actually hasn't. And you look at folklore to some degree, mythology, and then uh, more organized religion in this part of the world, and it's very rarely mentioning any of these sort of magical devices. Uh, for instance, in the Bible, the word portal doesn't exist in the English translation, but the word gate is mentioned 338 times. Only one of those is mentioning a kind of metaphysical gate, gate to heaven, only one time in the entire Bible. All of the other mentions are physical gates into cities that were, of course, an extremely important. It's really after the Second World War where they start to become very, very common in fiction. And before then, they're not so common and they change with the sort of evolution of what's happening in society. So in the 50s and 60s, most of them are about big collaborative technological innovations in the sort of nuclear age. And then uh, in the 80s and 90s, the kind of more postmodern era where they become sort of uh, devices to connect uh, contradictions in culture. And then towards the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, almost all of them are about class and class wars and about belonging or not belonging. In the exhibition, we will unveil some of this, but it's really much more complex than we could have kind of anticipated. So this project will continue and hopefully it will eventually result in, a, in an archive that will be available where you can really search for which portals require training or which portal looks like this or their liminal depth, like how, how f long time it takes to pass through them or, um, yeah. Is there a certain um, goal that you pursue in doing re your research, in publishing manifestos, in doing public exhibitions, you know, some sort of influencing the trajectory or educating the general public about what this future might look like and how they can engage and, and possibly positively shape it? I mean, th there is that goal of uh, sharing that information and creating an awareness of both like what you what feelings might these devices instigate or where are we headed and so on i also like to say also that somehow you kind of do this work because you need to <laughs> like it's almost like you don't have a, a an option to not do it because suddenly you have that curiosity and then you start and you there is not an option to not do it. You cannot avoid uh, just like throwing yourself into it at a personal level as well. So I think that it's quite a lot of that as well, feeling uh, a sense of fulfillment through just like trying to figure these things out for yourself. And then if you can share them with others and they can be useful for them, that's also wonderful. <laughs> My final question is, what do these virtual environments that we just discussed 
mean to our sense of identity. You also discussed avatars and how we probably choose different avatars in different virtual environments. What does this do to our understanding of who we are, both in the virtual worlds, but also in the physical worlds? Do you see any future where it will change? It's not going to be pretty the next few years. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be hyper-commercial, hyper-centralized. And yet we're all probably going to go there because it will allow a possibility of exchange, a possibility for togetherness uh, that I, th I think most humans will find hard to resist. Human connection, being with others. And whatever means we have to do that, it, it seems to be in our nature to seek that, to seek those forms of exchange. So it's not going to look good. Uh, and then we're here <laughs> trying to see what are the ways in which maybe we can be more informed about it, doing this sort of research of like, okay, what are the things that we are going to be looking at? What is the meaning of that? In which ways we can make that better? What could be the better infrastructures um, that we could follow? I, I don't know. We should perhaps make a decision on like, should we go deep into politics to really try to make well, some of these things happening? It's like, what? No, it doesn't even make any sense. But it's just not going to be good. We might look optimistic. Uh, we might sound optimistic, but it's, it is going to be rough. It is not going to be a smooth ride. One thing that will very likely happen probably within our lifetime when smartphones get replaced with devices that will look like this, which means that all media that we perceive will be spatial, there will be a possibility to not have any artificial lighting anymore. No more billboards, no more spotlights, because all of the lighting that we navigate in our environment, both informational and navigational lighting, can be personal. It's a possibility that every city in the world will go completely dark. No more artificial lighting anywhere. That poses many questions for like, so how much energy would this save? What kind of life would this create? It's at the level that at even us spending a lot of time thinking about this, we can't quite comprehend the insane social and political, cultural problems that we'll have to face. Many people also speak of a sort of VR winter where like it will be behaviorally and socially so insanely complex, similar to what happened with psychedelic drugs in the 60s, that it's just too complex for society to handle, that it just became uh, illegal. So we are also very, very prepared that, that this technology might be extremely heavily restricted, and that might literally be the best way to go. And maybe ideally before something disastrous happens. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further.